Hey, this is Channing. And this is Leah. And you reached Vessel, Art is a Doorway. Welcome to episode 23. This episode begins our season two. So this episode actually starts our second season, and we're really grateful that you guys are here with us. Yeah, it means so much to us that you guys are continuing to support the podcast and listening in to some of these interviews. We know that we have a lot of fun when it comes to interviewing some of our guests, but it's really a pleasure to hear back from many of you and how you feel about the episodes. Some have asked how they can support the podcast. One thing you can do is in the comment section, Tell us how you feel about the podcast by rating the podcast and giving us a nice comment. But in the meantime, we really appreciate all of your support. Today, we have a really magnificent guest. Her name is Karen Rabinovitz. You guys are really going to enjoy our conversation with Karen. She is on the board of the Brooklyn Museum, and she is an art collector. And she tells us a bit about her background and also how her love of art led her through a time when she was grieving to rekindling a love of slime from her childhood and how she uses that to bring joy into other people's lives and also even help people with mental health. So let's listen in to this interview with Karen Rabinovitz. Audience, we have a treat for you today. Today we have the lovely Karen Rabinovitz, such a wonderful person. I think you're really going to enjoy listening into this discussion today. Karen is such an awesome person. Um, we've been following some of her work for some time now, and it is such a privilege to have her on the show. Thank you so much, Karen, for being on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Guys, Karen, let's just get into it. Karen is an entrepreneur and co-founder of, of the Slumu Institute. She's also on the board of the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and she's a wonderful art collector. So you're gonna hear how she started up the Slumu Institute, some of the things that she's been involved with, with the uh, Brooklyn Museum of Art, and why she's an art collector. Why collect art? Uh, you know, uh, and, and who really qualifies to be called an art collector, right? <laughs> you know, we're going to get right into that information. But Karen, could you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from, et cetera? Sure. So I have actually spent my whole career in the media space. I started in the mid-90s as a journalist. This was a time when print was everything. And um, I grew up at Women's Wear Daily. So Women's Wear Daily back then was a daily trade newspaper. It was the Bible of fashion. And it was a really great place to cut my teeth because in an environment where you're working in a daily, it was really fast paced. I love to work in fast paced environments. I am somebody who thrives with deadlines and pressure and a lot of things in my plate. It's easier for me to uh, not get as much done when I don't have a lot going on. So being in a place where it was go, 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 deadline, 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 I think prepared me for everything else in my career. And because the world is so fast paced and I I segued from print journalism into the social, what we now call social media. But when I segued into digital, nobody used the word social media. It was sort of in the early, you know, 2000s maybe um, is, is when I started to like realize that that's where the future would go. And that's such a fast paced environment that if I had, you know, when you think about a monthly magazine, which I spent a lot of time writing for monthly magazines, I'd write stories for sometimes five months in advance. You know, I love this bam, bam, bam pace. And um, P.S., after being in journalism and writing books, and I used to do a lot of television back in those days, I really felt my push towards what we now call social media. And I started a consultancy in about 2005. And it was really about digital marketing and getting people to look to the worlds of blogs. And at the time it was barely even, there were like message forums, you know, it it was before Facebook opened up its, its, platform to people who didn't have a .edu 
email address. And it took a long time for me to convince brands that they should not only be in this space, but that they should hire me to help them be in this space because they were like, we don't want to be online. You know, eBay's online. And I would be like, yeah, eBay is going to be one of the biggest companies in the world. And they would be like, no, no, we don't, we don't, we, you know, we don't, we don't want to be online. We don't want to be on the World Wide web. Um, and my previous kind of incarnation right before I'm doing what I do now was being the founder of the first talent management agency for social media influencers. And this is before it was a mainstay in marketing, before people were really at allocating enormous budgets of their advertising and, and, and marketing spends and PR spends for quote unquote influencers. And that company grew really, really quickly because the space changed really rapidly. And I went through a really hard time, maybe about eight, nine years or 10 years into that agency. Um, and it grew to, you know, 50 employees and, um, you know, we were watching hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deal flow, which is, I'm only I'm saying that, not that I was personally making that, but that's to show how quickly it rose in within 10 years, because in the beginning, you know, it was like, we couldn't get $5,000 out of a brand for a quote unquote influencer. And when I went through a really, I was going through a really hard time in my personal life around loss and grief and the world I was in. It, it, there was something that wasn't fulfilling me for a while, but I didn't really stop to recognize it because I was always just go, go, go. And I think in the wake of dealing with so many real things in life that were painful, it made me take a step back and see what was important to me. And I was also, because of you know everything I was going through, I, I started to, I, I just broke. I, and I thought, uh, I can't heal in the environment I'm in. And in fact, I don't even know what environment I can heal in, but I had to take time off and I stepped away from my company in order to focus on the losses that I was dealing with and how that impacted me emotionally. And um, it was about a year and a half into that grief and mourning period when I wound up hanging out with a friend of mine who brought her daughter to my apartment and her daughter at the time was 10. And her daughter had slime with her because she thought, oh, I'll be, you know, sitting on my own while my mom and her friend talk all day. And I, the minute she walked in, I was like, Maddie, I got to see your slime because I heard she brought slime. And I was like, I grew up with slime in the 70s. <laughs> it was my favorite thing as a child. I knew there was this massive online community and this movement, but I hadn't seen today's slime. And the minute I touched it, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then, you know, I, four hours later, found myself still playing with Maddie. And my friend was like, that's fine. I'm happy to watch Netflix and have a quiet moment to myself. And I realized that playing with slime was so incredibly joyful for me. I felt like I, felt like I did when I was seven. I was just in this innocence of, wow. And I was really suddenly engaging all of my, except all my senses except for taste because, you know, it was scented. It smelled really good. It was visually beautiful. It was making really satisfying sounds. And then the feel of it that all of a sudden I was like, when, you know, when you're thinking about you're engaging four of your five senses, what more can your brain process? You can't go into <laughs> grief and pain or depression or any of those other things. So I really felt in the moment and one thing led to another. I became obsessed with slime, completely addicted. It was like overrunning my house. And I started bringing slime to a friend who was going through the equally difficult levels of tragedy and loss and um, life, just the real stuff in life that people don't always talk about. And we both found, you know, so much magic in this that we thought we have to bring this to the world. And that's what Slumu Institute became. We started it as an experiential space that you buy tickets to go, you know, to go. And it was about an hour and a half of all different ways of experiencing ASMR and slime and hashtag satisfying. We were giving a percent of our proceeds to mental health charities. Mm. Um, 
we were giving back to a mental health charity that specialized in girls of color from the onset. It wasn't, you know, I think that a lot of brands and a lot of people are kind of waking up to that importance. And we were doing it before the world was saying, look at this, why aren't you doing it? And, and, you know, we were doing it so naturally that we didn't even think we needed to talk about it. We were just doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, We really created a place of inclusion and a place where people could come and escape all the crap that's in the world. Um, And then, you know, and then COVID hit. Um, And we found a way to pivot into virtual experiences and e-commerce and uh, doing things really differently. And now we're working on a children's book and, you know, our dream is, you know, animated films and all kinds of merchandise that fit into our universe of inclusion and, you know, giving back to mental health and really telling stories that are about focusing on mental health without it feeling didactic. And that's what, you know, so Sluma Institute has been... really amazing. We worked with contemporary artists to build out installations in the space. All of the elements of our experience were inspired by contemporary art because both my partner and I are on the board of the Brooklyn Museum and we're both obsessed with art. That's what I get. That's where I find all of my inspiration in life. And all of my ideas tend to germinate from something I've seen or experienced in the art world. And um, we blend those two together. And in a way, slime is where art and science meet because it is a science, but there is an art to the creation of and how it's made and what it looks like and what you're calling it and the scent and, you know, all of the different materials and ingredients that you use to bring something to life. Mm -hmm. That's a very long winded opening. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, mic drop. No. Mic drop. <laughs> no, do we just go? Are we done? <laughs> no, that was, that was beautiful. I really appreciate that. That's kind of one of the things that we talk about too, with even with the art, uh, art itself and including spine with that, just being able to use our senses and how like we're just as humans, we are more than food, shelter, and clothing. And that's kind of what I, what I got too, from what you were saying, even from your experience with art and also even the sensory experience that you're, you have and that you're creating for others with slime and that there's something else that we as humans need to help I don't know, soothe, soothe parts of ourselves. And also it helps us to connect with ourselves and connect with others and work through things. And so I really think that what you just said and what you're doing is quite beautiful. Thank you. And if you think about it, when in our lives do we get to just feel like we're like six, you know, and just play. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a saying by George Bernard Shaw that says, something like you don't get too old to play. You get too old when you stop playing. (laughs) I love it. And so um, what have you heard? What are some things that you've heard other people say about their experience with SLUMU? I mean, during the pandemic, we've gotten a lot of emails and had a lot of conversations with parents who have said, this has literally saved my child. You know, my child's having a really hard time with online learning and playing with slime keeps him or her or, or them focused. And we're hearing a lot of people say, you know, even the adults, this has been so stressful and so anxiety provoking for me. And slime is this little reprieve that gives me a space of calm or makes me smile and makes me laugh because it is difficult to, you know, when I, when I have conversations with people and they're like, I don't know what's going on with you. And I'm like, what could be going on? I do, I go to work and I do nothing else. I come home I don't, you know, I, I moved to a new neighborhood and people are like, what's your neighborhood like? I'm like, I don't really know because nothing is really open. And it's not like I can walk around and talk to my neighbors. And um, so slime feels like a community. And when they come to our space and we are open again, and we're obviously open safely with a limited capacity, they're, they've been cooped up for so long that this feels like magic. And, you know, they're laughing and they're smiling and, and they, you forget, you forget what's going on in the world when you're in sort of a modern day incarnation of Willy Wonka. I know. Now for our audience, you know, the current situation, we know that this isn't going to be forever. You know, this is going to pass, but currently 
people, when they get involved with the Slumu Institute, how exactly are they uh, getting involved with the slime right now? You know, what, what, what are some of the during programs you're yeah, doing quarantine? What are some of the things that you're able to do? So the first thing you do when you come to Slumu is you get your slime name. So we, um, our name Slumu came from a behavior we were watching happen on social media where people were saying, replace the vowels of your name with OO and <laughs> that's your slime name. So, you know, you're Chunung um, and um, Kurun. Um, so we were thinking of a name for, for months and months and months and months. And we were into building the brand and we were already creating the experience and we we knew what our brand colors would be, but we didn't have a logo because we didn't have a name. And then one day I said, well, what if we replace the vowels of slime with OO? That's Slumu. And Slumu is about more than slime. Slumu is really joy and play and mental wellness and inclusion. And that could be a character, you know, like very sort of Japanime inspired, like, and when we look at slime, slime is not binary. So it's not a liquid or a solid. And we're living in such fluent times and people are looking at their identities in non-binary ways. So our character Slumu is also not binary. And, you know, we want to tell stories for, for children and for families, but, you know, that are from a point of view of not seeing the world in a very binary way. And I remember very early in our space, and I'll come back to the experience, but we had a couple who came to us to say, we're giving you the gender reveal of our baby. And we had this area where you could basically slime poured down on you. We called it Slumu Falls. And, you know, you'd be in like a biodegradable poncho with a hood and, you know, goggles and, booties and anyway i was like mm. i mean what does it matter pink or blue now what mm. is girl or boy why does why can't a boy be pink like why does it have to be like that and i remember being and i remember having this conversation sort of behind the scenes and somebody like sort of like jokingly hit me and they were like just give them blue slime if it's a boy enough enough like that's yeah. what they're paying for <laughs> yeah. um, and i was like you're right you're right you're right you're right you're right i don't have to like force this on the world and it's not like i mean i am i identify as as female and i but i just don't think that anybody needs to you know any form of identity like you can be i i, I sort of in a weird way when i was a journalist people would say well what do you what do you write about and i was like well they'd be like, are you, a you know, when I was going for job interviews, are you, do you want to be fashion? Do you want to be beauty? Do you want to be travel? Do you want to be lifestyle? Do you want to be entertaining? Do you want to be art? And I was like, yes. And they were like, no, which one? And I was like, why do I have to be one? Why can't I be somebody who understands and can fluidly like dip in and out of different worlds? And that's when I became freelance because in the actual job space, everything was very binary and it was very much in a box and people always labeled you as one thing or another and you couldn't be a lot of things. And that was always something that bothered me. So anyway, you get your slime name and you get your little name tag and then you walk through a hall that is like the history of slime. And we start the history of slime in the 1800s with the invention of the synthetic polymer, because that to us is like the grand, the grandparent of slime. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have existed without those inventions along the way. And we want to tell the story of science up to, you know, the 1960s flubber. Oh no, to the 1940s was silly putty. The 1960s was flubber. The 80s was slime a la you can't do that on television which was then picked up by nickelodeon so nickelodeon didn't invent it they bought into a franchise and then it became gack and then it became slime with the diy culture in like 2014 15 16 to today's universe of slime um and then you walk to a giant wall that has in neon the word slime and repeat that was it's script neon which was inspired by tracy emin and you we're a slime tender there's slime in these beautiful sculptural containers that were inspired by the artist tony craig um and then a slime tender wearing gloves first of all you wash your hands and then there's alcohol wipes at every single station so you alcohol wipe your hands even though you've just washed them and then a slime tender with gloves hands you your own individual piece of slime 
and explains to you about the slime and to tell you to smell it because it's scented. And then there's a wall and you can find a place on the wall to stick your slime. Um, and we're obviously cleaning the wall between things. And this wall is almost like our version of a Kusama obliteration room. Um, was very much inspired by her. Uh, mm. Then there's an area where somebody stands behind like a plexi and there's like a catapult and you catapult slime at somebody. And then we have a brain machine. So two people sit at this table, we alcohol clean the table and we alcohol clean this like headband that goes around your head and it measures your brain waves. And the idea uh -huh. is that when you're playing with slime, you know, to see who's more relaxed and it'll show your brain waves on the screen and the ball on the table will move away from whoever's more relaxed. Wow. Our initial idea was that one person's on slime and one person isn't. And now everybody who comes, they just both want to be on slime. And so we give you your own little container of slime. It used to be coming out of a vat and throughout the experience, everywhere you went, there was a vat of a different type of slime that everyone could play with. And there was always alcohol wipes. We took away the vats for now but you're given your own little container of slime. Um, there's a DIY bar. So you are designing your own slime. You're choosing a base texture. You're choosing from 60 fragrances. You're choosing from like 50 different colors. You're choosing from 200 toppings that are like little charms. So you could brand your slime and then you get to mix your slime. And then there's little video rooms. So you can go film little videos with your slime. There's a glow in the dark room that was created by an artist, uh, two artists, Paul Outlaw and Jen Katrin. And they've done a lot of installations with the Brooklyn Museum. So they created this like otherworldly universe where um, we imagine Slumu lives. And that's like your wow moment. And in the room is glow in the dark slime that we have people demonstrating. Again, we're not like having people touch the same slime. You can listen to ASMR sounds. You can wake, there's like a room that we call a tunnel and it is all CGI ASMR videos. Um, when you go back to our DIY bar, it was really inspired by Zaha Hadid. You know, in our world, we have mannequins and they're painted pink, blue, yellow. It's like about our world is not about a color. Like we're all the same. And so it doesn't matter if you're blue or pink or, you know, et cetera, black, brown, yellow, green, gray, you know, we have an area that used to be vats and vats of slime where there were like little different tools that you could play with. And now we turned it into a quote unquote Sunday bar. So we have people wearing gloves and they, there's 15 different slime textures and they show you what all of them are about. This one's known for crunching. This one's known for popping. This one's known for drizzling and they're all scented. So they sort of waft it towards you and you can smell it like through your mask because the scent is strong enough and then you pick your own slime so you take that home with you and then there's an area where you're like going through an obstacle course and you're walking on slime but you can't go in that area unless you're alcohol wiping your feet and uh, we change the slime all the time we're constantly disinfecting the space um and that's the general the general gist so mm -hmm. the experience is between 60 to 90 minutes Wow. That's, that sounds... And, and another artist named um, Jillian Mayer created an inst like a sitting, like a bench installation by the, you know, Lake of Slime, which we call Lake Slumu. Um, and so you're, again, you're sitting on a piece of art. You're looking at something that is crazy and artful. Mm -hmm. Sounds That's... like an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's we fun. know where we're going this time. We're in New York, right? Yeah, you better hurry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sign me up. Uh, Channing, ooh, uh, please. Yeah. Uh, please create a little uh, name tag for me. <laughs> Done. You'll get your name tags. Don't you worry. <laughs> so you mentioned that you played with slime when you were a kid. What What was your first memory of art? One of my first memories of art, my mom and my mom and dad love art, but my mom really loves art. Like my mom does have to do a little dragging of my dad to a museum. But when I was growing up, my mom always wanted to see art. So there were so many times when she would take me into the city when I was a kid, I grew up in New Jersey and we would go and look at art together. And I do, I remember seeing a Picasso, like woman with yellow hair and, you know, the face obviously was um, very surreal. And I just remember being captivated by how a face could look so different, but still feel like a face. And, and I think on some level, what was registering for me is that like, we all don't have to look alike. Um, and then when I was looking at this woman and she was sort of like 
in this like dreamy state, I was like, what's she thinking about? Like, what's that person's life? And now that I'm obviously a quote unquote adult in quotes, cause like, am I really, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, what I personally love about art is like, we all see the world through the lenses of, through which we grew up. And the way we grew up was defined by our parents and the way they grew up, community around us, our race, our religion, our what we're exposed to, what we have access to, what we don't have access to, which is often determined by, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds or race and religion. And um, I've always been so curious, even as a child, about the way other people did things. Like, I am Jewish, but I have friends of all religions, and I used to go to their I wanted to go to their churches or temples. I wanted to know what their services were because I only knew what mine was. And I went to a private school. And what was interesting about my school is that it was very diverse. So I had friends who were black. I had friends who were Indian. I had friends who were Muslim. I had friends who were, you know, Chinese. I had friends who were Korean. I had friends who really had different representation. And I didn't think anything that uh, of this as, as abnormal. I thought everybody had this. And when they started talking about like what they did for different traditions and I was like, oh, it's so different than what I do. So why? I want to know. I want to learn. It was more just because I was curious and and I knew that the world was bigger than the microcosm through which I, I was, was shown. Um, and what I love about art is that it, you, I can suspend what I know and see what somebody else sees. And without it being written and, and didactically told to me, I am seeing it through, whether it's a painting, an installation, a piece of a digital work, a, a film, you know, a sculpture, you're seeing something through the way somebody else sees something. And I don't, there's no, obviously there's right and wrong in the world of how you treat people, but there's no right way to like, I mean, it's hard to say there's no right way to live. Like I'm a believer in, um, as, as regardless of what my politics are, I believe that everybody should have their own points of view. And I, I don't like the way that the world is going where like people are being canceled because they don't believe the same thing. Yes. Should we have, obviously I don't believe in somebody should have race. Like there should be racism. I'm not talking about the hate. I'm talking about like, I'm pro choice, but I'm not, I don't feel like I should, I don't want to live in a world where everybody has to have the same point of view because then it's just the same. I mean, I'm allowed to have my point of view and I'm allowed to respect somebody else. And I would like my point of views to be respected as well. And I believe that like we could all grow and learn and change. And so what I really love about the art world is that I can really feel somebody else's perspective and it can enhance my own or impact my own because I can like be moved by something emotionally by, by without somebody pointing at me and saying, this is wrong and this is right. It's just somebody's perspective. Mm -hmm. And then I can see the world through different eyes and see other struggles. And maybe I haven't, I, maybe I haven't had those struggles and I've had, I've had my share of struggles. And I think that it just, my struggles have made me empathetic to others. And that's what I love about being in the art world is being able to experience diversity in a way that feels really safe to learn and really safe to ask questions and really safe to then say, wow, does this change the way I should see things? Because I, you know what I mean? If I only saw the way that I was shown, then I would just, I don't know. I would just be like, another Jewish white girl. Like I want to, you know what I mean? And there's nothing. And then again, I don't want to make any Jewish white girl feel bad for the way she might see things. If it's stereotypical, whatever that means. <laughs> like I, again, do you know what I'm saying? Like I just, for me, it's important that I see the way other people experience and that makes me sensitive and that makes me grow and that makes me see things differently. And that's what I love for me. That's at the crux of why I love art. That's what it is for me. And it's funny what you just said made me think of like an ancient proverb that talks about like how basically two people, just like you use iron to sharpen a knife, two people can sharpen each other. And that's the beautiful thing about us having different perspectives. But when we share it, we can have a I feel like the more we share it, the more we can come to, you know, get to know different types of people. It, it broadens our perspective and we actually have a more realistic view on things. And it's beautiful and enriching to, to yeah. do that. 
And I, that's the, I agree with you. That's one of the beautiful things I love about art as well. And I, I think just going back to what I said, because I, I know how it can sound, because I do think that there's a lot of, um, I, do, I do look at the fact sometimes, like I, I, I have two different stories and I know it's a little off topic, but I have a very close friend and we were once like getting a cab and she was like, will you hail the cab? Because uh, they won't stop for me. And I was like, what do you mean they won't stop for you? She was like, well, I'm black and sometimes they won't stop for me. And I was like, I was like, taken I felt like somebody sucker punched me I I it was so hard for me to believe that that exists and then I was like I am so sheltered that I don't think that exists and the only reason I don't think it is exists is because like that's not how I see things but I it was like the first time something like that was said to me or that I like witnessed somebody and but the other day my fiance was walking down the street and we he there was a a, a boy like a teenage kid who is Jewish in that he was had the payas and he's the black hat, so he's super religious. And a man came up to him and said, "You, you know, spit, literally spit on him," and mm. and said something like, "You dirty Jew." And my partner saw this and said, "Excuse me," and but like I would say, "Excuse me," if anybody said that about anybody's race or religion. Um, and my point is that like, as, a, as somebody who is Jewish, like I go through the world and experience that, you know? And that's just as bad as somebody who tells me a cab won't stop for her. And people aren't necessarily talking about that. And that's like an area of like, you know, I once got a receipt at a restaurant. I was there with a friend of mine. And sometimes I guess they like may, might make comments about who's at the table so they could remember what table it is. And when I left, I looked at my receipt and it said two Jews. Wow. They're just looking at me. You know, and what I think is important is that these stories can be told through art in a way that can hopefully let other people see it and grow and other people see it and change and not judge other people because we all have our crosses to bear, whether it is based on this or something inside or our own, you know, ways that we grew up or the old ways we were told as, at young ages that we weren't good enough and that somehow is a part of us and we have to find like struggle our whole lives to feel good enough. And we all deal with that on some level. And I think art is a way through. You know, audience, before we got a chance to hit the record button, I'm, I'm really digging this conversation by the way, but we got a chance to walk through uh, Karen's home and she is a fabulous art collector. We wish that you could see some of the paintings that are behind her. Thank but now you. Karen, could you could you tell us? Uh, can you think back? What was one of the first art pieces? Oh, I know, I know. I do remember. It's funny because I have one of the first pieces that I collected that has no quote unquote market value, but I don't care because it was literally and like I've worked my whole life. Like I did not. I don't have a trust fund. You know, it's not like anybody handed me a lot of money to say, go, you can go buy art. And isn't that, you know what I mean? I've, I feel like I, I've always been a really, really, really hard worker and I work hard for a few reasons. And one is which is that I do prefer to take Ubers or cabs versus, and I will work my butt off so I can take them. And I love, I love being surrounded by art because again, it opens my eyes to things. And the art that I live with is literally I don't think that there's like a religion or nationality or, or background not represented in this collection. And I feel like it just reminds me of, of the openness with which I want to live. Um, but the first piece of art, I, there depends on how I look at it. One was like, an, I bought a fashion illustration that I just, I fell in love with. I was in Paris. I was there as a fashion journalist, I was probably 25 years old. I was at a store. It was like a store that was very similar to Colette back at RIP Colette, but it was like, uh, it was called Onward. And they definitely always had art exhibitions like from major artists and like young illustrators. And there was this fashion illustration and the guy went by a name of Matteo and mm. It was, and he did these very elongated figures and it was like very wink, wink in a way at the fashion industry. And it happened to be a woman of color who was wearing this look by Dries Van Noten that I could never have worn because I am not a long, tall, cool glass of water. Um, and 
um, you know, it was maybe $500, which for me was so much money. And I bought and framed that and I lived with that for a really long time. And I also bought, there was another artist who's, who she would make these like sculptures of guns that were father was like a gun collector, but not like a hunter or anything and just somebody who collected them, but she would make these insanely detailed sculptures out of liquid porcelain through a pastry squeezer. And mm-hmm. I have that sculpture still. It has no, again, value in the art world, but um, once I started living with these objects or pieces on my wall and I started feeling like somebody else's history, I was like addicted and I wanted more. And um, that is still very much, it's like when you're an art collector and, and anyone can call like collect art. It's, you know, there's a great documentary called Herb and Dorothy. And it's about a couple when they're like in their like eighties or nineties. And they've been there. He was a postman and she worked in the public library. They did not have a lot of money, but they wound up spending every extra dollar they had on art. And they wound up being really incredible at finding artists before they were at their pinnacle and buying them at really good prices. And at the end, they wound up donating like multiple, multiple like trucks of art to the National Gallery of Art in DC. And, you know, they amassed tens of millions of dollars of art, but by by spending like hundreds of dollars at most at a time. So, you know, it doesn't have to be this like scary insurmountable thing. Some of the pieces in my collection were hundreds of dollars and are actually worth now a lot more because I found them, you know, early. So I, I love living with, I love living with different types of art and, you know, different stories. And, and I know nobody here can see this, but I'm just gonna, so you can see like a little oh, flash of, wow. of things like Korean women, t- like this is a story of like, Oh, a, sort of because somebody comes from a repressed family. This mm-hmm. is a, a French woman who paints in very hyper surrealism. This is, a piece by like a very, very outspoken, like LBGTQ plus. Then there's like a painting by a Middle Eastern woman who's really sharing like the struggles of Middle Eastern women looking to control their own narratives. And, you know, that's just sort of like all in a row. And I get to feel like a piece of myself in all of them, even if I'm none of them. And that, that that's, I think that's really nicely said too, because that's the thing. It's like, even though we all have different backgrounds, that's what makes it beautiful. But then we all connect on a lot of levels. And so it's like, even though somebody's had a different experience, like you under, you can understand and relate to their situation, even though it's completely different from yours, but it can, it can still remind you of yourself or what you want to be. So if you're um, collecting, do you have like a specific method or do you go off of a certain theme or a feeling when you look at um, I go off of a feeling always. I tend to lean towards women artists and not on purpose. It just shakes out that way. And every time I like something, I'm like, you know, and then it winds up being a female artist. I'm definitely in, I know there is like a very trendy moment right now of this like hyper real, surreal, figurative work, but that has been my, my propensity anyway, for like the last five years, my taste has gone more and more in that direction of this sort of hyper-real surrealism and a lot of figurative works. It's not that I don't love, it's not that I don't love abstract because I do, Um, but that just is what I'm attracted to right now. Sometimes I have to stay away from Instagram because I have the disease of collecting art. Some people get it with tattoos and it's, you know, even if you're finding pieces before artists get really, really known and are expensive, it still could add up between insurance and framing it and installing it and you know, um, and sometimes I'm like, I just can't look like I have a friend where she's really, we're both in art and we love to talk about who we were looking at. And the other day I was like, I don't know if our friendship is healthy because like we get off the phone and I want 20 new things that I didn't know about and vice versa. Maybe we're bad for each other because we're like triggering each other's like art disease. <laughs> so what would you say uh, when it comes to your individual pieces, uh, what are some of the things that motivate your decision on which art pieces you add uh, to your collection? I think I just have to feel moved. You know, I really, I want to live with it. 
I don't buy art to stick it in storage to say to hope it goes up in value to sell it. I want to live with it. I want to live with it in every nook and cranny in this home. I can always find new space. I don't mind being like a little like overcrowded with art. I just, I have to feel it on an emotional level. And there's some art that I love, love, love. And sometimes I feel like it's a little aggressive, but so it's not for me to live with, but I love it. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I need another home. I mean, if I can, I can't right now, but when I'm in a position one day to have another home, then I could have like a different story. And, you know, my dream is to have different homes, have different stories, but, you know, let's turn Slumu into the, the Pixar series. <laughs> then I could, you know, do lots of philanthropic things as well as collect art. And my dream would be to have a space that I could turn into a public space of, you know, curatorial interest, but um, and it's just because I want to be surrounded by art, like at all times. And when I look at it, I just find something new in it. I find something like, how did that person think to put this right here? Like I look at a piece sometimes and I'm like, how did she, it's so perfectly done. And you could feel somebody made this leg with one brush stroke. And then I'm like, how did you do this? And be like, I'm done. And it is done. Uh -huh. But if I did that, I would be like, no, I, I need to keep going. Like I wouldn't know when to stop. So there's like this amazing restraint sometimes an artist has when they're making their work that I look at it and I'm like, how did they know? <laughs> <laughs> now we want to get into uh, some of your fabulous work that you've done at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. Um, exactly what is it that you do there? And what is your favorite thing about working at the Brooklyn Museum of Art? So as a board of advisors, uh, on the board of advisors, I... I, you know, we, we everybody on the board sort of has a different skill set. Mine definitely comes in the form of marketing and storytelling. And so I contribute in those conversations with the marketing team or, you know, with the content team or, or bringing ideas to the executive director or the deputy director or bringing in other pe people who tell great stories with content and, you know, how can they share and proliferate what is happening at the museum through their channels. You know, there's lots of meetings about like exhibitions and how we as advisors can support the exhibitions or help with fundraising in ways that, like for me, I'm not somebody who's like connected to people who write massive, massive checks to museums, but I am connected to getting in front of brands. So can I bring some of these exhibitions or things that are coming up in the museum's future to brands so that they can hopefully support. So it's just finding ways that my I can lend my my time and my skill set to enhance, you know, what they're doing. I mean, even just during the pandemic, one thing the museum looked at was how do we create virtual experiences or how do we enhance our own e-commerce shop? And I've now been running an e-commerce shop and can use my own learnings to bring that or vendors that I work with to the museum and find ways to create interesting partnerships with them or things that I'm seeing culturally that I can say, oh, some this I'm making, you know, when Aurora James, who has a fashion brand, came up with a 15% pledge, which is that retailers of you know, multi-brands would have vendors that are from 15% of the brands on these shelves would be from people of color. I said, we have to bring this to the museum and they were already doing it, but I just wanted them to at least be aware. So it's having those conversations and then it's being in meetings about things that they're collecting or, you know, things that they're, that are, they're thinking about, or how do we improve in X, Y, or Z areas. And, you know, it's nice to be in a group of people who have different backgrounds and skill sets. And, you know, we can also glean information from each other and support each other. Have, have you um, noticed, like, since you've been working with the Brooklyn Museum, has it impacted the way you see art and collect work? And then also has it impacted the way you share? Because I guess in a sense, since you're helping them with marketing and things like that, you're you having to communicate, I guess, do you communicate I guess from the the museum's point of view or from some of the artwork that they have there? I don't communicate from the museum. I mean, I would only communicate from the museum's point of view when I can share things that the museum is doing mm -hmm. through my own Instagram. Um, it's more like 
you know, clubhouse, I could like call people and say, what's our clubhouse strategy? You know, that's the thing that's happening right now. We should be talking about this and let's not do it when it's too late and really hard to build a following. We should get in on it now. So it might be things like that. Um, I think the way it's impacted what I collect is I think it's just sometimes opened my eyes to other uh, artists or other, other ways of, of, you know, I mean, you do get great access because like they're talking about artists they might be going on studio visits to. So I get to go to studio visits of an artist that I might have loved, but, you know, some, but I'm not afraid to DM an artist and say, I'm a, I'm a collector. I love your work. You know, I'd love to do a studio visit with you. And that I, I, I do that all the time. And that's, you know, gotten me into a lot of studio visits, which then make me fall in love with an artist, which then make me want to own that artist. And for me, sometimes when I get to meet the artist, or at least feel like I have a relationship with the artist, even if it's just through Instagram, it makes me feel more attached to the piece. That's, that's, that's really wonderful. <laughs> and that's just my way. That's, you know, yeah, I mean, no, everybody, that's... everyone is different. Yeah, that's, that's great. Cause it's like, um, you know, some, some people we've talked to, I think, Honestly, a lot of the collectors that we had, we personally have talked to, they haven't had like a specific theme. It's just very intuitive. And then some think about it for a long time, but I really love how, like, from what I gather from what we've talked about, you're very much into relationships and stories and people and connecting, which is a, a beautiful thing. I also, like I said, I might love work, but I if it doesn't feel like it fits the collection I'm living with now, I, I feel like as much as I love it, it doesn't feel right. I want to feel like I have a cohesive language and, you know, hopefully in my future, I could have another home and have another language in that home and have different mini collections. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And we can't wait to come and visit you. <laughs> well, please, you're welcome to come. I've got a guest room. <laughs> all right so um now how how's your work at the brooklyn museum has it it sounds like it has like you talked a bit about it but impact impacted the work that you do at slumu institute as far as how you've you and your partner have like organized the experience there um i think in general just it's more about seeing different installations and being around different art experiences some of which have been from the Brooklyn Museum. I mean, there's things that we've seen at the Brooklyn Museum that we would love to do at SLUMU that we were like, no, there's, you know what I mean? We don't have the budget for that. Like we're still a startup at SLUMU. So um, we kind of do the best we can with our tiny budgets. I can't pull together these like massive multimedia installations the way I would love to. Um, and think about like bringing in, in, you know, next level lighting for everything. So but I mean, I think all of this gives us ideas for like, oh my God, remember when we experienced this at the museum, we should do this. Well, after COVID or when there's, you know, budget, we should find a way to do that. And we're actually doing um, something with the Brooklyn Museum. They have their uh, family day event. And this year there's a big virtual component. So we're doing like, a vir we're, we're, we're involved with them through with virtual, um, with teaching people how to play with slime. And we're donating slime to the people who are, going to the virtual event um so you know there's always a dialogue yeah that, that's magnificent so what are some upcoming events that you'll be engaged in that we can tell our audience about or some of the plans for the future i mean i don't know i don't have anything <laughs> because all i do is like at slumo i mean i think there's things i'm excited about like the brooklyn museum has a cause show his first you know major museum represent uh, retrospective in um, the, the, in the US. So that's really exciting. And I think that I think that whether you are a huge fan of cause or not, I think he is so culturally significant. And what he has built as an artist and the way he has blended his commercial practice with a fine art practice is, pretty much unmatched in today's world. Um, I think that in a hundred years, people will be talking about him the way we talk about Warhol now. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that show comes together and what the installations will be. Um, you know, at SLUMU, we're always evolving and creating all kinds of virtual programming, virtual after-school programs, virtual mini camps, 
Camp Slumu. So all of that is actually launching on our website on Thursday. We're going to have like pre-orders for all of our next, all of our programming through the summer. Um, so that is exciting. We're working on a children's book with Slumu, um, which we're, again, we're really excited about. I don't have any dates yet because we're just, just finally kind of finalized what our story is. And now we're working on the actual book itself. So a lot in the works. And on the other side of this, I will have like a lot more to share in that way. Right now, I think it's just about, honestly, we're above water with Slumu and it's just about staying there and thriving again in a bigger way on the other side. Because when you're only allowed to be open to 25% capacity and you have to change elements of the experience where everybody used to be able to touch slime and we, you know, it's, it's not affordable to do it in the way that makes sense and give everybody 50 slimes. And it's not possible to do it in a way where everyone's touching the same slime. Like we've been really creative and we're very proud of what we have. I just, I, I would love to be able to constantly do more and I'd love to open more of them around the not just the, the country but around the world but you know we're not in the position for that right now yeah we'd love to have you out in Los Angeles <laughs> yeah we did a pop-up shop in LA over Christmas um over the holiday at um Westfield Century City just the shop for slime but we'll eventually be in LA for sure <laughs> looking forward to it so how can our audience learn more about you and Slumu and all the wonderful things you guys are doing there um they can go to slumuinstitute.com they can check out our Instagram and our TikTok which is at slumu institute they can look at my own personal Instagram if they want to see the things that inspire me in the art world, because that's all I post on my personal Instagram. Um, and um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Karen, it's been such a pleasure and a treat for us to have you on the show. Uh, it's something that we've been, been really looking forward to. And it was magnificent, not only hearing how your art collection, how passionate you are about it, but seeing how you've created this Slumu Institute with your partner and seeing the interaction that it's having on people with the um, ASMR and just mental hearing, health and yeah, mental health. That it, it, it's so phenomenal. And we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for, for, for being on the show. No, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to talk to you. I'm so glad I got to see you both too. That was so cool. I really enjoyed talking to Karen about the Slumu Institute, her work at the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and also her passion about art collecting. That was so fascinating. And, you know, I can't wait to go to New York once all of this madness is over and actually visit the Slumu Institute and get in there and get a chance to smell some of the 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 slime and the play with it and experience the whole ASMR thing. That's going to be so phenomenal. That is going to be a lot of fun. I also really enjoyed when she mentioned why she collects art and why she enjoys or what she enjoys about living with art. The fact that when she collects pieces, she's thinking about the stories of the people who actually made those pieces and how she feels connected and enjoys connecting with people from all walks of life. Yeah, I really enjoyed that too. And we want to thank you, audience. We know, as we always say, that there's so many different things that you could be doing with your time, but you're here with us. And we're very grateful for that. Thank you for listening in to Vessel Art as a Doorway. <laughs>